This is episode 42 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this episode, we talked to David Swindler. And David was nice enough to join us while traveling up in the Pacific Northwest after he had been to Olympic National Park, finding a place where he could record in Seattle and talk with me. And I was really inspired by our discussion. Number one, like David is a very down-to-earth person, very right-brain, left-brain oriented, which is rare to find, I feel like. I feel like a lot of people are one or the other. Finding somebody who is both is very interesting because they have that cerebral task-oriented mindset, but they also have the ability to think creatively and outside the box around some of those significant problems that can come up in life and also in photography too. So talking with David, I think one of the one of the things that stuck out to me so much was that at the very end of our discussion, that's called a tease by the way to keep you around until the very end of our talk. David shares his story about quitting his job and taking the risk to become a full-time photographer, which I found really inspiring and hit home with me too because it resonated and it reminded me of my own personal story of quitting my job to go full-time in photography. So stick around for that. We also have plenty more good stuff from David throughout the rest of the episode, which I think you're really going to enjoy. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome into the discussion. Today, we're here with David Swindler, and David is actually a phenomenal photographer that I've been following for some time. I reached out to him to come onto the podcast, and he generously obliged. And uh, David, I'm all hopped up on coffee right now since it's morning where I am. Uh, what's going on with you today? How have you been? Oh, I've been doing great. It's pretty early still over here on the west coast and we just got back from a fun little weekend over in the uh, the olympic national park area so yeah i'm ready to get the week going and no better way than to have a fun discussion with you this morning how are conditions over uh today it's kind of cloudy little misty over here i'm in seattle at the moment but you know, this weekend was beautiful. Had some nice, uh, nice sunny moments and clear, uh, some clear moments up in the mountains. So, yeah, it's pretty par for the course out there. Yeah, it just all depends. You know, some weekends you really score, and other weekends it can be rainy the whole time. So just take advantage when the weather's good. Yeah, well, I, I feel like we would all appreciate and I know I would be interested in kind of hearing your origin story into landscape like outdoor nature photography. Yeah absolutely. So you know I didn't start out as a photographer but I've always been a very avid outdoors person and I get got into the outdoors you know as a boy scout as a kid and you know I grew up in the great state of Iowa and as you know in Iowa there's not a lot of outdoor recreation opportunities <laughs> 
uh, unless you're really into like the corn fields and soybean fields and stuff like that. But, you know, we'd go on these like trips every year during the summer, you know, up to like North Shore of Lake Superior or over to um, Michigan and or Northern Minnesota. And, you know, those trips really got me interested in exploring more of the great outdoors. You know, I loved backpacking and I loved camping and and so I got more and more into it. And, you know, after I got out of high school, I decided I was going to come out west because, you know, I really fell in love with the landscapes of the west and the adventure of the west and everything that goes along with it. So, you know, once I turned 18, you know, I moved out of Iowa and came out west to Utah. And I loved it out in Utah. You know, there's just so much to see so much to do uh, the opportunities were just endless and i ended up uh, studying chemical engineering in college and for me chemical engineering was just a great uh, blend of the interest that i had you know i loved chemistry in high school and i really enjoyed the mathematical application of it and i wanted to do something that was practical and so engineering really fit the bill on that end so I ended up getting into chemical engineering and it was a pretty involved major. You know, so many credit hours that you keep, the school doesn't even let you take a minor. Mm-hmm. And so that just consumed me, you know, for four solid years. But even during that time, you know, when I could sneak away and try to do trips up into the mountains and stuff, I would try, I would definitely try to do that. And then also taking trips during the summer breaks, you know, when I wasn't busy working. And, you know, I remember doing this one trip to Peru during that time, and we did all this amazing stuff. You know, we were climbing some of the high mountains down there, and we were doing these multi-day treks out to these lost Incan cities, not Machu Picchu, by the way, um, and seeing these remote corners of the country. And, and I got back from that trip, and I was like, man, we did so many cool things, but yet I don't have anything to really share with people except my mm-hmm. memories. Mm-hmm. And my my verbal testament to it. And I was like, you know, maybe I should start looking into uh, getting a camera and kind of learning this. Well, that kind of stayed as a afterthought in my mind. You know, I ended up graduating and went to work for a company called Micron Technology up in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And my specialty there was photolithography. And that's where we put down a thin layer of photosensitive chemical on the silicon wafers. And then we use very high-end optics and lasers to image tiny little patterns into that photosensitive chemical. And those patterns later become kind of the pattern that's used to form the circuitry on that microchip. Hmm. And so, you know, we have to do many different layers of printing in order to finally complete that microchip circuitry. And so this pattern has to be as optically perfect as you can get it. Because, you know, we're dealing with things on the nanoscale here, which is extremely, extremely small. And each layer has to be perfectly aligned one to the next. You, ha- you have to be able to control the, out- the optical aberrations and so forth. And so it was a very, um, very specific application of photography, in a sense. Well, you know, at the time, I was living in Idaho awesome place as well for the outdoors and finally I decided okay now's the time I've got to pick up a camera 
And so when I did pick up a camera, I was like, hey, this is super easy. This is all just the same application of what I'm already doing at work, just a little different way of using it. And so, you know, I kind of started like we all do, where we get something cheap that we think is going to uh, work well for us, and we quickly realize that it's not going to accomplish what we want to do. And like one of my first goals that I had was to do one of those long exposure shots of a waterfall with that soft water effect. And I was like so frustrated with this point and shoot camera because I couldn't get it to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, I couldn't put filters on it and this and that. And so that's when I got my first DSLR and quickly um, started progressing after that point. <clears throat> and then I started taking my camera with me everywhere I went. And pretty soon my trip started to change from where it wasn't just pure adventure, but it was more like, well, where can I get some really cool shots? Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started falling in love with photography because it allowed me to express my artistic side, but also be able to do what I love in the outdoors. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next is it sounds like your job was so technical and exact and, you know, mathematics and and science are something that blew straight over my head in school. Uh, It's not really what I'm wired for. Photography had to give you that creative outlet. Was it difficult for you to hack into that creative side after being involved in something so technical? You know, I've always been kind of an artistic person at the same time as also kind of being technical. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up, I was really into classical piano. And, you know, in high school, I would practice like four to five hours a day, you know. And I was really into the competitions and just really refining my skills and abilities in that in that realm. And, of course, you know, when I got to college, I realized that majoring in music would be a pretty tough career path going forward. So that's when I decided to do the engineering side of things, but I still always loved my artistic side. And so I I wouldn't say I never, I ever lost that. And for me, when I started picking up a camera and started just looking for compositions just innately, it just came to me. It just wasn't something that I had to like learn the composition rules or this or that. As we kind of say, I kind of had an eye for it from the beginning. And of course, you know, I had to work on refining that and becoming better at it. But it was something that I always, uh, I always could just, just had an innate feel for. And so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult, I guess, to merge the artistic and the technical aspects of photography. But what it required for me was just spending a lot more time doing it and practicing it and kind of refining you know, what looks good, what doesn't look good. Oh, I thought this looked great to the viewfinder, but once I get it on the computer, no, it didn't work so well. Why didn't it work so well? Just kind of asking myself those kind of questions is what really helped me to progress and become better. Is that the most difficult thing for you to teach? Like, I know you do a lot of tours and workshops. I know you work with the Outsiders group, managing and helping set up those conferences. It is balancing the left brain right brain technical creative side of self-critiquing one of the most challenging things 
people have dealt with based on your experience? Oh, it absolutely is. Like, it's easy for me to teach the technicals because, you know, once you understand the technicals, you're good to go. But it's the artistic side of photography and learning what's possible. That's, that's actually quite hard to teach, especially in just um, a three or four day outing on a workshop or a single day tour out in the field. And it's something that, you know, people have to commit to working on if they want to get better at it. And yeah, you, a workshop is a great way to start because it'll start showing you new ways to look at the world and give you the critique that you need to kind of see, okay, well, this is why my method maybe wasn't ideal in the first place. This is how I can improve upon that method. But yeah, learning the, the eye for composition, that is probably the single most difficult thing to teach people. And sometimes people have it coming into it, sometimes they don't. And when they don't have it, it's, you know, I can kind of teach them the same thing over and over again, but unless they're, they really start kind of changing how they look at things, it's hard to grasp it sometimes. How, how do you assist them and walk alongside them in that journey to be able to see a composition? Well, a lot of it's just breaking it down into uh, more simple terms. Because obviously, if you just look at everything at once, it can be overwhelming. And you have to say, okay, well, what's what works with this particular composition and what doesn't? And just kind of break that down simply. You know, you might say, well, this one kind of has too many elements right here. We probably have a bit too much sky over here, and this is not balancing the scene. Um, we need a stronger foreground, so how about we move a little bit lower and then see how we can add dynamism and energy by just tilting the camera a couple inches to the left. You know, just kind of showing them step by step, you know, how I would refine one particular composition, I think really helps them understand the thought process that goes into it. Do you get bored easily with, with certain genres of photography? I wouldn't say I really get bored. Just because every time you, you're at a new location or the lighting conditions are different, it's, it's kind of new and exciting. And even if I go back to the same place, let's say it's the 20th time I've been back to a place, you know, I'll always challenge myself, okay, how can I come up with a new composition or a new way to look at this? And for me, that keeps me engaged. If I just go back and take the same old shot from the same old viewpoint, and all that's different is maybe a few clouds have changed, you know, that's boring. Um, and I would quickly lose interest in doing that. But, you know, if you always kind of challenge yourself to say, okay, this time I'm going to maybe shoot with a telephoto lens instead of with that wide angle lens. Or this time I'm going to try to do a really low angled composition and try doing some focus stacking. You know, then you can, it really keeps your, your brain engaged. And yeah, it doesn't get boring. Yeah, the reason I asked is because I was reading up on you and, and doing research leading up to our discussion and on your website it says you know you really specialize in like outdoor nature landscapes uh wildlife and night photography i get i get the landscapes and night photography connection but i've often found a lot of photographers if they shoot landscapes they don't always switch over into that wildlife genre too yeah, and I find that very interesting, to tell you the truth. And 
you know, when I first started this business, you, you know, I had a client that came to me and he's like, I really want to do wildlife photography. I'm like, great. You know, so I took him to a fabulous place for wildlife photography. And one of the mornings we were out there, we, you know, we didn't have much in the way of wildlife sightings, but we had some amazing conditions for landscape shooting, like mm -hmm. fog rolling through, the light coming through just right. Just, you know, it was just magical. I couldn't have asked for any better conditions for a landscape shot. But this, this guy was not interested in shooting any of it. He only <laughs> wanted to shoot wildlife. And I was just like, really? Are you serious? <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of hard for me to understand, but really that is the case. There's a lot of people that just put themselves in one bucket or the other, and they don't really feel like they can cross between. And you know, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that the technical skills for one versus the other are different. And you have to learn very different skills for wildlife shooting versus landscape. Another is the compositional element between the two is also somewhat different. But there's also a lot of cross-linking between them. You know, what you learn at, with wildlife will only make you a better landscape shooter. What makes you good at landscape will only make you a better wildlife shooter and vice versa. So I don't, I don't necessarily prescribe to the, you need to dump yourself in one bucket or the other. Mm -hmm. I think learning both genres will make you a far better and far more well-rounded photographer. And the same thing holds true that when you're out in nature, sometimes you're gonna get the great wildlife shot. Other times you're gonna get the great wildlife shot. If you have skills for both, you'll be prepared to capture both. And for me, I get just as much excitement out of getting a great wildlife uh, encounter as I do with seeing that brilliant sunrise. And it's even better when you get the wildlife and the sunrise together. Yes, that is something that I've always like thought that a lot of people miss out on is pairing those two together. And those are often my favorite type of photos in the field. And it's, it's because it, it almost seems like you're working two levels of creativity at the same time. Number one, you're balancing what the wildlife is doing in the field. Number two, you're constantly watching weather conditions, weather patterns, what the light is doing. That is, it, it's for me at least, I don't know if this rings true for you too, David, but, but for me, it's the most pleasing types of photography to do. And it's also the most memorable and enjoyable for me. Yeah, and I would agree, you know, having, you know, I wouldn't say I'm as much of a wildlife purist. Mm -hmm. I'm, I would say I'm more of a wildlife opportunist. Mm, what do you mean by that? So I'm not the type that's just going to go sit behind the bird blind for hours out of a day. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that would drive me bonkers. Yeah. Because I, I hate just sitting around and waiting and this and that, but you know, I love going to like Africa, for example, and actively driving around and looking for wildlife opportunities and kind of creating those moments. Okay, there's a giraffe out there. Okay, well, we're going to have the sun setting here in about 30 minutes. I'm going to try to get myself lined up. So when that giraffe walks right in front of the sun, I'll be ready to shoot that shot. You know, it's a very, for me, it's a very active process. Or like when we do like our polar bear workshops, you know, we'll be trying to position ourselves in just the right spot, you know, to get that perfect shot of the bear, you know, as the light is just right. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how I like to, t to do wildlife photography. I'm not just to sit there and wait and see what happens. 
you know, instead I'll try to find out where the animals are, get myself in position, and then try to make it all come together uh, at the right time. Man, not not only are we both Davids, but it literally, like, that would be my exact answer. And that, that's how I like to do, th- we're like the same person, David. <laughs> awesome. How did how did night photography break into the equation? So for me, what really got me hooked on ph- nature photography was when I could find situations where the camera would see the world better than I could with my own eyes. Mm. And one of those situations was with, was with long exposures, because by doing a long exposure, you know, of like let's say middle of the day, I put a ten stop ND on and I get this really ethereal um, photo of like some, uh, of an area where water would otherwise be moving. You know, that fascinated me. I was like, this is really cool. I can't believe how I can simplify things and get all this movement in clouds and, and so forth. But, the, the, but then night photography, that blew me away. The first time I got a full frame camera and I put a fast wide angle lens on there and took a shot at high ISO. I was like, whoa, the camera can see all this detail in the night sky that I can't see with my own eyes. This is so amazing. How is it seeing all this color that's really there, but my eyes just can't perceive it? And that got me super excited. And I also just always loved the peacefulness of the night sky. You know, this is a little story. When I was, uh, when I was 10 years old, my family went on vacation out to the southwest. And we took my grandpa along, and we went and camped along the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And it happened to be a new moon period. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had to go pee. So I got out of the tent, and I saw my grandpa sitting at the picnic table when I got up out of the tent, and he was just looking up at the stars. And I went over there and joined him, and when I looked up at the sky, it just instantly blew me away. I had never seen dark skies like that over in Iowa nor had I been able to see the clarity of the stars as you get in a dry desert environment like Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, I just sat out there for what felt like forever, just staring at the stars and just being filled with wonder and amazement. And, you know, I kind of made a commitment to myself as a kid right then and there that I would, that I had to return to that area someday. And that's part of the reason why I'm now uh, based out of the Southwest down in Southern Utah, because we do have some of those darkest, clearest skies that you're gonna find anywhere. And then night photography just kind of blended that love of the night sky and the peacefulness that I feel in shooting at night with the amazement of the camera being able to capture more than I can physically witness uh, with my own two eyes. Is that what made you land in Kanab? Uh, that's part of the reason, yeah. The other reason why I landed in Kanab is because it's central to the areas I love most about the desert southwest. You know, we've got Grand Canyon on the south. We've got Zion, just Kitty Corner. We've got Bryce to the north. We've got the Grand Staircase Escalante and the Vermilion Cliffs National Monument uh, over to the east. We've got Lake Powell in the whole Glen Canyon area. You know, it's just endless out there. Every direction you go, you can find an amazing place to go shoot. And so Kanab just made sense as like a great central hub for all of that. Population of Kanab is what? Uh, It's not large, you know, probably about 5,000 people right now. 
And and so it's like, the, I would say it's kind of the perfect sized town where you still have enough amenities. And there's quite a bit of like hotels, restaurants and stuff like that. But it's not so big that now you're getting into light pollution problems like what you have over on the Moab side of the state. That, I mean, not large is, to me, I would label that as very small. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but I've also lived in metropolitan areas my entire life, so. Yeah, and, you know, I guess you got to put it all into context, because around Kanab is also towns that are much, much smaller. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, but, you know, the nice thing about Kanab is, you know, they, they've prescribed to a dark sky ordinance, same as like Springdale, Utah, which is over near Zion. And because of that, you know, we've been able to keep our light pollution footprint really low and keep the sky super dark all around that area. And I, see, and I always see what's happening in other parts of the country and even in other parts of the state where light pollution levels are just growing by leaps and bounds. And you know, we're kind of losing this dark sky treasure that we have, and it's becoming more and more rare. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and tell you that right now, all of the courses on my website, whether they be hosted by me or outsourced to visualwilderness.com, are 33% off right now for a limited time if you use the code David33 during checkout. Again, this is a limited time offer. You can learn things in post-processing and also some things in the field at the beginning of some of the courses on how to shoot some advanced techniques and photography, but also covering some of the problems that you may encroach upon as you tackle different types of photography too. So again, you can go to davidjohnstonart.com and click on the learn button and you will be transported to a page where it lists several different topics ranging from short, cheap post-processing tutorials as well as extensive multi-case study post-processing courses that you can take a price range for everybody so you'll definitely find something that can help you and benefit your photography would you say light pollution and what you're talking about is the biggest threat to night photography i would say that's one of the threats it's certainly a concern in you know certain areas where cities are growing very quickly but I would say the other threat that we have is, you know, how uh, the National Park Service and other authoritative agencies are viewing night photography. And, you know, I really applaud efforts by like Royce Baer and Wayne Pinkston, you know, trying to influence public policy in, in certain areas like Arches and Canyonlands, for example. And that's, those are two national parks that have actually come in and banned what we call low-level lighting. Mm -hmm. where we try to light up uh, features at night. And I think a lot of that has come because there's been conflict between too many photographers being out and people not working well together. And, you know, there's also misperceptions out there on, you know, how much light we're putting out on a landscape when we light it up for night photography. And really, if, if you were to come walking up to a scene where we have it lit for night photography and you have your headlight on, you wouldn't even know that we have lights on because they're so dim. 
-hmm. You know, this, the light from your headlight is way more powerful than anything we use to take a night photo or just the lights, car, headlights from your car. And so, you know, the impacts, you know, on things like wildlife and other things, it's, it's very minimal. Yeah, compared to people just driving around the park with their car headlights on. But I think one of the biggest, you know, that's one of the biggest problems that we're going to face in coming years is how do, you know, our public park administrators view night photography and, you know, are they going to let us continue doing it without all these extra restrictions coming into play? And also now that it's becoming more and more popular, you know, how do you manage the crowds of photographers that may show up at particular places at night? Now, that's one of the advantages that I have down in the Kanab area is that I have many, many places that I'll take you at night that you'll never see another photographer kind of thing. But, you know, for those people operating in like the more uh, congested national parks like Arches and Canyonlands, you know, that can be a really tricky proposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially with everybody, like you said, walking up with headlamps on, um, you know, you may have, I don't know, 20 to 50 people at a night location, especially the ones that I've been at in peak Milky Way season that are kind of encroaching on the lighting situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've just heard nightmare stories of, you know, people showing up at a particular arch and Arches National Park or something, and there's like 50 photographers all there at night. Well, that's really hard to work with everyone. You know, even if everyone does agree to doing a consistent lighting scenario or something, then you're going to have people turning on their headlights and, and doing other things and ruining people's shots. You know, it's just super hard to control. And I think, you know, just having a better public education you know, as to, okay, these are the etiquette. This is the proper etiquette for night photography. This is how we all work together. This is how, how we all achieve a common goal. We'll really help in that regard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, for you, what are the etiquettes of night photography? Well, I think, you know, the, the etiquette, of course, is, you know, always asking people, you know, when, to, when, when it's okay to turn on a light, um, you know, obviously be having a communication with everyone as far as, you know, okay, this is what I might, this is what my goal is. This is what your goal is. Let's see if we can work together. Because, you know, someone who's doing time lapse is going to have a very different agenda than someone who's out there trying to shoot stills. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone who's trying to shoot stills is probably going to want to do some different types of lighting. He's going to want to move around and get different compositions. Where a guy doing time lapse is going to want, everything exactly the same, nothing changing, no light ever hitting the subject. You know, that's, it's really hard to blend the interests of both parties. And, you know, one thing I always tell people is that using a red light is probably the worst thing you can do for night photography. Hmm. I hate red light. You know, if someone shines a white light on the scene, well, chances are I can deal with that in post and kind of tone that down and and actually make things kind of work. But if someone shines a red light onto a scene, well, good luck ever trying to remove that. It's like absolutely impossible. And having just like that red light glow coming from back behind, you know, that looks terrible. Um, and so using red light is not something I ever advise. And it also kind of changes how you view color and stuff like that. It's just better to, you know, if you're going to use a light, just take your cell phone out of your pocket 
and use the backlight from the screen on your cell phone to see things around your camera. And you can actually do quite a bit just with that backlight from your phone, and then you're not going to bug other people. But the main thing with night photography etiquette is you just have to communicate. You know, you just have to talk with the other parties that are there, make sure that you're all on the same page, tell them what you want, and then just kind of all work together. The worst thing is when you get someone who's just, um, that doesn't communicate and, and kind of makes everyone else mad. And then, you know, that's how, kind of how like fights and stuff can start, which I've heard of happening in some of these busier national parks. You've mentioned your workshops, your tours. Uh, we, we've talked, or I've briefly mentioned the Outsiders Conferences for Outdoor Photographers. Why, why are you so passionate about teaching photography and that side of the business? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, for me, teaching photography is all about taking me back to my early days of exploration and excitement when I could start seeing <clears throat> the potential of what the camera could capture and how I could convey that vision to my viewers. And, you know, if I wasn't teaching and going out with people that are seeing these landscapes for the first time, I think going back to your first question is I would get bored. Mm -hmm. You know, I love seeing their eyes light up with excitement when they see the possibilities and how they can take a really awesome photo that they never initially envisioned or when they first see these amazing landscapes of the southwest for the first time and their jaws just drop open or the first time they take a milky way shot and they see on the back of the camera screen what their cameras capture you know for me that is what makes it all worth it is being able to be with them in those moments and then it kind of takes me back as to what got me so excited about it all in the first place I'm like, yeah, this is so cool. I, I love being out here. I love doing this. So for me, teaching is really kind of takes me back. It kind of resets my way of thinking and helps me be like, yeah, you know, this is really neat what we're doing. And then being able to take, you know, what I know, and be, able, be able to see the light in other people's eyes as they kind of understand that and apply it is what it's really all about. Have you always been skilled in teaching? You know, I've, I think I kind of have. For me, you know, because it, when I first started photography, I, you know, I had to learn it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to read lots of books, watch lots of videos. You know, we didn't have the plethora of resources out there online that we have now for helping to learn it. And, you know, just the, tidbits I would learn from everyone else I would go out and shoot with, you know, it was all really invaluable to me. But because I had to learn that from the ground up, I could understand the process of it from beginning all the way to the end. And so for me, it was, it, it actually was easy for me to teach photography because I had that ground level understanding. Whereas something like music, for example, that always came so easy to me that it was hard for me to break it down to the bare essential process. And so like teaching piano, for example, was much more difficult for me to do than it was to teach someone photography. And I think you, in order to be a good teacher, you have to have gone through the struggle yourself. 
And once you understand the struggle that other people can have, you can help them shortcut that process and become better that much faster. Hmm. So almost like bringing empathy and emotional experiences into the process too. Yeah, exactly. And kind of understanding where they're coming from rather than just saying, okay, this is how you do it. A, B, C, D, and E. Here you go. You know, you kind of can start them out with something a little simpler and say, you know, how about we work on this right now? And this is how we deal with that particular subject. And then this is how you progress. And that's what really can help you become a better teacher is you just have to make it very simple. You can't overload with too many things all at once. You have to work on one or two concepts at a time. Let's say somebody wants to learn from you or, or even other photographers. Uh, lay out for me, kind of compare and contrast the differences between a workshop, a tour, and a conference. Like, what are they going to get out of each one of those? Yeah. And so, you know, at Action Photo Tours, we offer both on demand day and overnight tours. And we also offer a lot of multi day workshops. And these are the experiences that will get you out in the field, get you to amazing locations, and you'll be practicing your camera skills at the same time um, you're seeing these amazing landscapes. Or I should say wildlife. We also have a bunch of wildlife-focused workshops. And so like on a day or overnight tour, you know, that's designed for people that don't have a lot of time and they just want to say they want to go to White Pocket, for example. So we'll take them out to White Pocket. We'll stay out for that sunset a little bit, you know, after sunset for some of that twilight glow. And then we head back to town. It's a full eight hour trip. And during the, those three and a half hours that we're out shooting together, you know, I'll give you as much tips and tricks as I can provide. But, you know, it's fairly limited in that. You know, I can help you with some of your composition, get your settings right. Uh, take you to all the best photo angles within that area, kind of encourage you to go find some of your own photo angles. And and then that's that. But, you know, when you come and do a multi-day workshop, it's much more intensive. You know, we're together for multiple days. I can help reinforce concepts much better. And on top of that, we can spend some time doing post-processing, which I think is the whole other half of the equation. You know, learning how to take the good photos, find the good compositions, that's only gets you halfway there. Uh, you have to be very proficient as well in the digital darkroom and know what you can do with post-processing because that also kind of changes how you shoot in the field. And so by being able to kind of meld both sides, you know, by going out shooting and then also taking classroom time during the workshop to do some of that post-processing training, that's really what kind of brings it all together and hones your skills in one complete package. And then of course, you know, when you do a multi-day workshop, let's say you have bad or crappy weather for one day. Well, the nice thing is we have multiple days to work together. So it's not just, we're not throwing all our eggs into one basket, so to speak. So for me, you know, people get the most bang for their buck out of the multi-day workshops, because then you just have like three, four, five days just to really focus your mind onto okay, how am I going to be a better photographer? How am I shooting? How am I going to post-process this? And so on and so forth. Now, the conferences, that's a 
another way to really in, in, kind of improve your photography skills. And a conference will be just like over a weekend. You know, it's going to be like two to three days. And the great thing about a conference is that you're going to be able to interface with hundreds of photographers, not just me or whoever's leading a tour or a workshop and the other participants on that workshop. You're going to interface with hundreds and many proficient speakers, many people that are uh, top of their game in the photographic industry. And not only that, but you're going to interface with industry reps and uh, people that are really in the know. And the great thing about a conference is that you're there physically. And so that you can actually just focus your mind in and learn during that three-day period. You know, I know when I try to do like things with online learning, it's really hard for me to get myself focused because there's so many distractions all around. I've got emails coming in. I've got my, my phones going off as text messages. And, oh, I've got to go do run this errand. Okay, I'm not going to finish whatever I'm watching. You know, there's just so many things that distract your attention. I just don't find I can learn very well that way. But when I can go and just dedicate my mind, um, I'm actually there. I'm taking notes. I'm really engaging with the speaker. And that's how I can learn. And that's what we try to offer, you know, as part of the out sessions. And, you know, we had to postpone our conference this year, of course, because of COVID-19, which is really, uh, really disappointing on many levels. But, you know, we're coming back bigger and better than ever for April of next year. And we'll be announcing all the details of that conference to the public very soon. That's awesome. Any sneak peeks or anything like that you can get of give us for the next conference well for the next conference we you know we have art wolf coming back he was going to be our keynote this year so we're really excited that you know he was able to uh, find an open slot in his schedule for 2021 and we were able to put him in there so super excited with that we've got some other great um, speakers coming in you know i can't really tell you exactly who everyone is right now, but we'll be doing that public launch soon. That's going to be held in Kanab, Utah at that brand new conference center. It's state of the art. And the great thing about coming to Kanab is you're, like I said before, you're right in the middle of all these great shooting opportunities too. So, you know, of course we invite people coming to the conference to come a few days early, stay a few days later and go out and put those skills that you're going to learn at the conference right into use. You know, we have a bunch of um, overnight tours and workshops as well in connection to the conference so that, you know, you can take what you learned in the classroom out into the field with you when you come visit. For you, starting in 2014, like you said, doing photography full time, what, what's been kind of the greatest achievement that you've experienced? You know, I would say the greatest achievement is, you know, when I started, I had absolutely zero name recognition. Nobody knew who I was. And it was kind of serendipitous how it all happened, too, because, you know, I was, you know, I loved, I loved my job working in semiconductors. You know, I was, I was very, you know, I had a very important role with the company and everything. And I was in research and development, you know, coming up with the new processes for the latest microchips. 
So I was always working with the greatest, uh, the latest technologies, and you know I loved the team I was on. But there's always this thought in the back of my mind that just kept gnawing at me. They said, do you really want to do this the rest of your life? Would you be happy on your deathbed saying, yeah, you know, I stayed in this career my whole life. It was great. I'm, I'm satisfied with that. And that thought kept coming back to me that, no, I would not be content with that. And I wanted to try something that had a little bit more risk associated with it. I wanted to see if I could actually give it a go on my own and could I actually make things work. And so I was out backpacking around Mount Rainier one weekend, and you know the wildflowers were great. I was having a really fun time, and I kept thinking about that while I was out and out backpacking by myself. And I came to the, the the determination that I had to quit my job at the next good opportunity. And so I made a commitment that I would do that. And I was thinking the next good opportunity would come, and like maybe the next couple years. Well, the very day I returned to work, I hear my coworkers in the cubicle next door to me talking about a voluntary severance program. Mm -hmm. And I was like, did I hear that right? Mm -hmm. So I quickly scan through my emails and I see an email from the vice president where he's saying, yeah, we're gonna have some layoffs coming up. Anyone who wants to quit now will be given a severance package. It's like, well, I asked for a good opportunity, this is it. So I'm committed. So I walked into my boss's office that morning and said, hey, I'm going to take the package. And he was like totally surprised, like, you? You're taking the package? Are you sure you don't want to think about this for 24 hours? Because once I put it in, it's final. And I'm like, no, just put it in. I'm taking it. Now, I had no idea what I was going to go do to make a living after that point. And so, you know, I ended up quitting my job at that point. And then I had several months to kind of figure out what it was I wanted to do. And I quickly realized that just being a pure photographer is extremely hard. You know, trying to sell prints and all that is, is difficult work. Mm -hmm. But I realized during that time that, you know, people are excited about the work that they do, the photos that they take. Those are what they want to print and put up on the wall. And so if I can help them take those amazing photos, that is where I'm going to um, be able to add value. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started the business doing, uh, doing the photo tours. Now, being that I had no name recognition or anything, it was tough going at first. It took a while to start building that momentum. And for me, that was the most amazing thing through this progression, was seeing how I started and how things are now where you know, I have lots of momentum. I have lots of, you know, we serve so many clients every year now through Action Photo Tours. You know, honestly, I did not think that was going to be possible when I first started all this. I thought it was just going to be, I would just barely be scraping by each year just to pay the bills kind of thing. But now it's actually a viable business that we have going on. And, and I love seeing how many people that we're able to serve each year. And, you know, the it's just kind of this ball once it's kind of reaches that critical momentum as it moves forward, it just keeps moving faster and faster and faster. What about learn about yourself? What I would say you learn about yourself is that you're capable of a lot more than what you think you are. And, you know, there's this adage out there that you often overestimate what you can do in a year. 
but you very underestimate what you can accomplish in a decade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of have to have a longer vision for things. You know, what can you accomplish during that decade? You know, where do you think you can be 10 years from now, five years from now? And you're, you're able to do that, but you kind of have to also be patient with it. You know, it's not going to come just in that one-year period. You have to be able to give it a multi-year multi-year approach. And the other thing, too, that you learn about yourself is that being a lone wolf out there doesn't get you very far. Mm -hmm. You know, there's only so much you can do just as a single person. But, you know, once you start collaborating with others and being able to leverage your own strengths and abilities together, that's where you really start um, progressing and becoming better. And, you know, I love being able to work with multiple guides and instructors with Action Photo Tours because each of our photographers and instructors, they all offer something unique and different. And they all have different methods of teaching. And some people will learn a lot more from Instructor A than they ever will from Instructor B. And this, the strengths that each one can bring to the organization is really important. And the same thing with the outsiders. You know, there's four of us that uh, all work to put on these conferences. And we all have such different skills and abilities. And by bringing the four of us together, we can build an event that really has a lot of meaning and a lot of value. And it's going to bring value from multiple uh, angles, not just a single angle. And so I've really seen a lot of benefit from collaboration versus when I first started out, I thought you just had to be the lone wolf out there. Where can people go to find you? Uh, they can go to my website. It's www.actionphototours.com. And then we have information on our conferences at outsidersphoto.com. So actionphototours.com and outsidersphoto.com. Awesome, David. He's David Swindler. David, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast today.